You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Danny Goldberg has been inside the music business since Jerry Wexler told him that there were no secrets in 1969. He was the president of Atlantic Records, Warner Brothers Records, and Mercury Records. He currently runs Gold Village Entertainment. His new book is Bumping Into Geniuses, My Life Inside the Rock and Roll Business. Thank you for joining me, Danny. Oh, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. You know, one of the things that about this book, I think there's a theme of this book that's hidden in plain sight. This is a book about rock and roll, about outsized egos, about wild creativity, parties, just and all the strange things about rock and roll that we all know and are familiar. But what I think is hidden in plain sight is what you, the perspective that you bring to all of this, which is a really refreshing pragmatism. And I think it's from the get-go you were that way. Well, I think it's it's the rock, as I perceive rock and roll, it is this combination of creativity and pragmatism. Um, I think it was a commercial art form at its birth. Uh, you can't say that about every art form, but I think uh, if you look at Rock Around the Clock or Elvis Presley or the early the early rock and roll was was about making money, and it turns out that people kind of snuck art into it. And then when you get to my generation and somebody like Bob Dylan and some of the other folkies enter rock and roll, I think they're, they're consciously, people accuse Dylan of selling out, but I, I believe he was buying in. He was buying into a culture that was defined by the Beatles. And, and the trade-off uh, was that you could reach millions of people that you couldn't reach just through a poetry magazine or, or, a, or, a, or, a, jazz, uh, or a jazz concert. And, uh, and rock and roll is this hybrid between art and commerce, and those contradictions run through all of the great artists that I work with and certainly through my own you know, career. So I try to be honest about the balance between trying to make a living and trying to, from an artist's point of view, trying to be successful at the same time, the fierce integrity that the best of them have. One of the your your book begins, and, and you talk about a talent transforming the business and business transforming the talent. Could you explain what you mean by that? Well, um, the, in the in the late sixties, uh, this thing called the album business really exploded. Prior to uh, the late sixties, out the, the kind of albums that sold were were recordings from Broadway shows or things like that. But but in the in the rock world and in the pop world, the main product was the single. People would love a song, they'd buy that single. And that was true whether it's Rock Around the Clock, even Elvis Presley. Um, sometime around 65, Dylan goes electric and does uh, Bringing It All Back Home. Uh, the Rolling Stones do Out of Our Heads. The Beatles do Rubber Soul. And these albums become works of art that, that had a beginning, middle, and an end. And suddenly, instead of paying 79 cents for a single, millions of people like me were spending, uh, you know, eight, nine, ten bucks for an album, and and uh, we were thrilled to pay it. I mean, uh, I, I love those albums that I got. Uh, I would read the liner notes. I'd look at the album covers. Uh, you know, every single song had a, had a job to do in, in, in the record. And, and this business exploded, and it was based on a youth culture and, and a different, and artists who wrote their own material. 
uh, it wasn't uh, the previous generation of, of artists, the record companies had a lot of control over the content because they were often picking the songs, picking the musicians, so-called A&R people. Even Elvis Presley didn't write his own songs. But uh, the Beatles did, the Rolling Stones did, Bob Dylan did, Jimi Hendrix did, the Jefferson Airplane did, the Grateful Dead did. And these, these artists were making so much money for the record companies that they ended up uh, having a huge impact. And suddenly people would get important jobs at record companies because they had a good relationship with a member of Led Zeppelin or they had a good relationship with uh, Jimi Hendrix. Uh, and, and, um, and the kinds of people who were able to get jobs and have influence changed and the uh, instead of uh, you know you saw people at record companies suddenly having long hair and smoking dope and you know they were more influenced by the musicians than the other way around now musicians who wanted to be successful did have to learn about radio formats and understand the length of a record and understand something about economics so they wouldn't get cheated so i'm not saying that the business didn't affect the artists but the artists tremendously affected the business and the kinds of people who were able to work at companies and i was an example of that i mean any success i had was because artists liked me not because accountants liked me now you were 19 years old when you started in in this business what what made you think as a guy who would i guess probably just graduated from high school that you could enter the rock and roll business I, I didn't even understand there was a rock and roll business at first. I just wanted to, I, I dropped out of uh, college after about a week. I, I was uh, confused about what to do with my life, and my main agenda was to get my own apartment. And uh, through an ad in the New York Times, I, I got a clerical job at a magazine called Billboard, which to me, I thought was going to be something about signs on highways. And I found that there was a music business. I didn't know there was a music business. I just thought there were artists and fans. I didn't know there was this whole infrastructure. The idea that there could be a magazine about the business was so bizarre to me. But after a few months there, I realized there were people on the other side of the office who, who were getting paid to go to uh, rock concerts or listen to rock records and write their opinions about them because rock and roll wasn't the only kind of music selling, but it was growing dramatically. And I had pretty low self-esteem and was pretty confused, but I knew I could do that. I knew I could go to the Fillmore and see Savoy Brown and write three paragraphs about what they did. So I I, I just kept nagging them, and, and I got the assignments that the older writers didn't want. The older writers, who were all of 30 or 35, wanted to go to clubs like the Copacabana where you could get free dinner and drinks. That's, those were the coveted assignments at Billboard. And the rock shows where you didn't get free dinner were the, were the, uh, were the bad assignments. And so I was able to get a lot of those, and those were the ones I wanted to go to. And one of them was the Woodstock Festival. Tell us about uh, covering Woodstock. That must have been uh, something uh, that even you didn't expect. No, I didn't expect anything. I was just sort of one day at a time, wild-eyed, trying to get through, trying to get through my life and trying to meet girls and so on. But I, I, um, nobody else wanted to go, so they they gave it to me. It was a typical kind of assignment that I would get as a freelancer, you know. And uh, I went up there in a limo. It was the first time I was ever in a limo. There was a press agent named Jane Friedman who later went on to become Patti Smith's first manager, who was the press agent for uh, Woodstock and. You know, we had hotel rooms. After about the second day, all the other kids were, like, muddy, and I'd show up with a clean shirt, and they looked at me like I was a narc or something. But uh, I wasn't a narc. I was a fan. Uh, I, I was not, uh, at a time in my life, uh, I was not in, going through a druggy period then. I, I'd kind of gotten scared straight, as they say, a year or two earlier. But I, I was totally enamored of the camaraderie and the 
you know, to be corny about it, the love in the audience. And, and the music was, was really good, but the audience was as much the star of it for me as the music was. And uh, I wrote a very rhapsodic, long piece, and it had become big enough news in, in, in the society in general that Billboard gave me more space than they usually did, and they ran on the front page. And the beautiful thing about writing is you get a byline, and so you have instant visibility as, as, a, way, as a way in. And, and, and that was sort of the beginning of me being able to get a little bit noticed. Now, um, tell us about uh, the the rock, the uncovering the underground rock scene. There were at first we had Paul Williams and Crawdaddy, but he had a competitor who was better managed, didn't he? Well, the, the what happened when all these albums came out, like the Dylan records and the, the Airplane and some of the Donovan and these serious records, where you had an audience who was taking this very seriously. And there was really no journalism around it. You'd have these teen magazines that would just sort of talk about what the lead singer looked like. And then you had serious magazines for genres like jazz and folk, but they had contempt for rock and roll. And um, so uh, a college student named Paul Williams created uh, Crawdaddy. And uh, that was really, to my uh, awareness, the first sort of serious rock magazine, the birth of rock criticism. And it's where Paul Nelson first wrote, and uh, John Landau. Landau went on to become Bruce Springsteen's producer and manager, and um, a, a lot of other important writers, uh, Richard Meltzer, uh, uh, many of them got their start at Crawdaddy because that was the only serious magazine. But Williams, as you say, was not a good businessman, and about a year and a half later, Jan Wenner in San Francisco uh, raised money from uh, family and friends and started Rolling Stone, and uh, he was and is a brilliant businessman, and he was able to take the idea of rock criticism and combine it with being sort of a news source of what was happening in the counterculture at the time, the Vietnam protest movement and other things, and uh, had the gigantic business success that uh, that Crawdaddy didn't have. And one of the ways he did it was he hired some of the best writers from Crawdaddy, including Paul Nelson and and, and Landau, because he was able to pay him more. I mean, more meant maybe paying $100 for a piece instead of 25 uh, And, uh, you know, that was certainly for... For several years, being in Rolling Stone was one of the main ways of getting an audience if you were if you were a, a rock musician. Of course, uh, then this thing called rock radio came along, and and um, and Rolling Stone then became only one way of reaching an audience. And rock radio for groups like Led Zeppelin was considerably more important. Well, tell us about this the, the birth of underground radio. It started here in the Bay Area, didn't it? It did indeed. Um, a legendary uh, top forty DJ named Tom Donahue. Um, had the insight that there was all this new music and uh, where people were processing it on albums and it wasn't just singles and that there was a group of nascent hippies that were liking blues and jazz as well as uh, and folk as well as rock and roll as and and uh, convinced the station called KMPX to try out this new format I think it was originally called the underground format and um, he, um, it was incredibly successful. It, 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 they, they all, they had some fight with the management of KNPX, and within a year or two, moved over to a Metro Media station called KSAN, and KSAN became the great rock radio powerhouse for decades in the Bay Area. And um, of course, Donahue's uh, music director, who, who he developed after a few years, Bonnie Simmons, and later became program director, is now one of the people who helps organize the Hardly Strictly Bluegrass Festival. So that, that, that energy has had a through line for many decades. But the success in San Francisco of the underground radio format spawned uh, imitators all over the country. And by 69, there were a couple of hundred uh, uh, so-called underground rock radio stations. And uh, so for artists like Led Zeppelin and uh, Jay Giles' band and a lot of the bands that came after it, 
uh, those radio stations became actually more important than the rock critics because they had a, the instant access to an audience where they could actually play music. And so when you were developing a career, you wanted to deal with the press and with the, and with rock radio. Uh, and, and, and how those two things changed over the years had a lot to do with what kind of artists were able to reach uh, big audiences. Well, tell us about some of those changes because uh, what happened when the rock biz that took off, you had like corporations that were really unorthodox for being such large corporations. Well, corporations like to make money. And that's that's the the it is an amoral entity. They're not human beings. They are amoral entities whose whose job is to make money, especially to make money uh, short term because they're if they're public companies, they're judged based on quarterly earnings, and that has been both a blessing and a curse for the creative uh, idiom of rock and roll. Um, in the radio business, it caused uh, uh, broadcasters who were very uh, you know, it could be conservative or, or could be totally disconnected culturally with anything to do with rock and roll to, to make uh, stations, uh, rock stations in the 70s because that uh, was a way of getting uh, the audience through ratings that uh, advertisers wanted. And so, so the ABC network, for example, uh, went to rock and roll and Metromedia. And, uh, you, you know, it's, it was whatever works. And it was the same with the record companies. Uh, you know, you may have had people in, in the mid-60s who liked classical music better or artists like Frank Sinatra better but but they gravitated towards the money and the money was was in rock and roll and it spawned uh, some strange uh, clashes of cultures but um, uh, there was a time when 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 uh, when radio became more corporatized as 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 the audience grew older by the mid 70s the the freewheeling underground format gave way to a much more conventional we called album rock format where they'd play 30 or 40 records, more rotation, more repetition. And that was sort of the, um, the system that ended up spawning what later became called corporate uh, rock bands. It wasn't really the record companies that were the corporations that created corporate rock. It was the radio corporations that said, we want to play music that's going to uh, get us these kinds of ratings. And uh, it gave opportunities to certain artists like Styx and Journey and Kansas and Boston and Foreigner, some of whom made some great records, but, but who had a certain sound that worked. And it, and it was a disadvantage to artists like the MC5 or Patti Smith or The Clash, who made records that had passionate audiences but didn't work in terms of the needs of these uh, corporate radio stations. It, one, there were some really interesting anecdotes in your book. And, and I love the anecdote about Famous Records and Billy Joel's first record, which had a little bit of a problem, didn't it? Yeah, I um, I really wanted to... I, I didn't have a good career as a critic because I was too much of a fan. Uh, I didn't have the, the sharp edge in my writing, and I never made it uh, to be taken seriously as a critic. But I, I, th that same quality made me useful as a PR guy, because that, that is being sort of a professional fan, where you're trying to wave the flag for people. And, and I didn't get uh, a job with my beloved Atlantic Records or any of the good record companies, but there was a, um, a Gulf and Western, which was a big corporation that was buying up different assets, had... Uh, had a group of labels that they called the Famous Music Group of Labels, and one of them was uh, run by a um, Damon Runyon-esque figure named Artie Rip, who had also started the Kamasutra Records, and which put out the Love and Spoonful Records, and been one of the creators of Buddha Records. He he had said that he saw uh, Buddha 
that he named Buddha Records because he had a, a vision during an acid trip and he saw the words Buddha across the sky. And Ahmed Erdogan pointed out that whoever, uh, um, who had ever created the vision didn't know how to spell because he spelled Buddha wrong in, 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 the, in, the, in the record company. But, but um, he then got a deal with, uh, with uh, Gulf and Western. It was called Famous Productions. And the main purpose of the deal was to make money for Artie Rip. He had a, a, a blank tape company that would pay him $50,000 for every record he delivered. So as long as he could make records for like 25000 he could get fifty for just delivering any record. There were some records that came out that he would tell me not even to mail to the press, to just leave in the office because all the marketing expenses were deducted. He was paying 50% of it. So it was a very cynical sort of scam to make money. But in the middle of it, he did sign Billy Joel. And and uh, who had who'd been in a Long Island rock band called the Hassles and made this his first solo record called Cold Spring Harbor, and um, it was a very very good record. Some very good songs on Cold Spring Harbor, and Billy Joel was in his early twenties, and I was assigned to do publicity for him. And he was in a perpetually sullen bad mood because the uh, the mastering of the record had sped up the vocals and it would have cost two or three thousand dollars more to correct this mistake and Artie just wouldn't do it. He, he, he liked the fact that Billy Joel actually was by accident or somehow being considered a real artist. So uh, so Billy Joel was a grump. I didn't get to know him that well because I was representing this company that was uh, that he looked on as these Philistines. Uh, later on, uh, he um, developed a cult following based on the song Captain Jack that he did on a radio concert we organized in Long Island on one of these rock stations. It was one of the first songs, I think, to have the word masturbate in it, which was incredibly edgy for the time. And based on having that cult following as a live act, he just refused to make any more records for Artie Rip and kind of um, famously went and played in a piano bar in California, out of which came the song Piano Man, and finally negotiated uh, freedom, uh, signed to Columbia. But Artie Rip continued to make money as a result of the negotiation from the next several uh, Billy Joel records, made billions of dollars for having signed them, get them to sign a contract at the right time. Now, tell us about how you came to work with Led Zeppelin, and what, how that experience worked out for you. Well, I, uh, I, I got a job working for a um, traditional uh, Broadway PR firm called uh, Salters and Roskin, and they had Ringling Brothers Circus, Frank Sinatra, Barbara Streisand, and Caesars Palace in Las Vegas, and they wanted a rock guy. They wanted somebody, they, they, there was this new business, rock and roll, and they wanted their share of those clients, and they knew that there were sort of, that culturally you needed somebody that the bands would like and, and, that, and that the rock critics would like, so, so I got the job. And after a few months, Led Zeppelin came to them to be a client, and I was asked to go and meet them in England because I was the only one in the office that you know knew who Led Zeppelin was, basically. And um, they had they had had an interesting odyssey with the press because Led Zeppelin was detested by the rock critics from the time that they started. They they were really made famous by rock radio. Uh, the critics saw them as as. Uh, sort of imposters into the arena that Cream and the Rolling Stones had already mastered. Uh, Jimmy Page had been in the Yardbirds, but uh, Eric Clapton and Jeff Beck had already come out of the Yardbirds and made some success, and so he was uh, viewed with suspicion as being maybe less uh, fabulous a Yardbird than the other guitar players that came out of it. Uh, and, um, and, the, and, and there was also that syndrome where a lot of these critics that we talked about earlier were now maybe 23, 24 years old, and the core audience for Led Zeppelin, as for any new exciting uh, artist, was 14, 15, 16. So a lot of the critics had that same myopia and condescension about 
young people's taste in music feeling that uh, you know they don't get good music we get the blues and we the rolling stones sort of had been grandfathered in as because they were big when when those critics were in high school but now that now there was a new generation of kids in high school the assumption i think the critics had is that these kids must be uh, stupid to like somebody like led zeppelin so they got uh, all of their first albums got bad reviews from rolling stone uh, the first record I worked on for Led Zeppelin, Houses of the Holy, the, the headline in Rolling Stone said Led Zepp 5, a limp blimp. And after a, a, a year or two of bad reviews, the band developed a hostility towards the press, which further exacerbated it. So there were famous stories of them sort of being rude to journalists or not letting people backstage or not giving people press tickets. And they'd also developed a reputation of being rowdy on the road and throwing television sets out of hotel rooms and, you know, uh, not always uh, treating girls uh, so nicely. And so they, they, they had a dreadful reputation in the uh, subculture of the people who wrote about rock and roll. And I, I told uh, their manager for their whole career was a guy named Peter Grant, who was a huge 300-pound former professional wrestler with a thick Cockney accent, very, very smart business guy who negotiated excellent deals for Led Zeppelin and changed a lot of the economics of the business, but 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 had a crude, intimidating manner that, uh, you know, was really uh, scary to a lot of people, including uh, me, but I, I, I had to tell him something in order to start a relationship, so I said, you know, um, to a lot of the writers, because I'd asked all the, my friends who were rock writers, by this time I, I was uh, spent a few years in the community of the New York rock writers and met people from around the country who wrote about rock and roll. I said, you know, they have kind of a reputation of being like barbarians. So he just laughed and he says, yes, but we're only mild barbarians. And it turned out that the band, at this time they were selling out arenas, they, they'd already done Stairway to Heaven, a huge commercial success, that they coveted the one mountain that they hadn't climbed, which was sort of mainstream fame. Uh, you know, they had this gigantic, financially lucrative audience, but they wanted what the Rolling Stones had. The Rolling Stones' last tour had been on the cover of Newsweek, and Truman Capote had gone on tour with them, and they just had another level of fame. And in particular, Robert Plant wanted that, and he was... He was the, although Jimmy Page was the, the creative force behind the band and sort of first among equals, Robert was by far the most outgoing, uh, easiest to get to do interviews. Um, and, uh, you know, we just bonded very quickly and, and he just charmed, uh, you know, dozens of writers. And, and, and between uh, me kind of using the statistical fact to prove that they were bigger than, than, uh, than other bands and Robert's uh, charm made a fair amount of uh, progress. And then the big breakthrough was that Robert Hilburn, who was the music editor of the LA Times, bought my argument that it was a generational bias that a lot of the music writers had. And he assigned a high school student to interview Zeppelin for the LA Times. And that was the 15-year-old Cameron Crowe, who later went on to write and direct uh, Almost Famous and Jerry Maguire and other great movies. And, and he did see Zeppelin through the eyes of a high school student and wrote an article about them with, you know, really getting their music. A couple of years later, when it was time for Rolling, when Rolling Stone finally wanted to do a cover story and the band agreed to it, they only agreed to it on the grounds if they could pick the writer. And Jan Wenner agreed to that because at this point Zeppelin was so big he needed them to kind of sell a little more copies. And, um, and Jimmy picked Cameron Crowe. Who did the first cover story of 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 uh, 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 on Rolling Stone for, uh, of Le uh, about Led Zeppelin and uh, uh, dealing with all that? So it was uh, 
it was a generational thing, and this happens again and again and again in music, whether it was later with punk rock, later with hip-hop. There's always a new group of kids going into high school who want to pick their own heroes and have their own aesthetics, and it's always going to be somewhat irritating to people four or five years older. And the trick of being in the business is to sense when those changes happen and always gravitate towards what young people want, not what older people want. Well, I, I certainly agree with you that they, they always pick that irritating music. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, but th things with uh, Led Zeppelin didn't end so well, did they? I mean, well, I mean, uh, I uh, had a falling out with them at some point. There were there was uh, more and more cocaine around, and it was getting kind of darker. I also was uh, wanting to do things on my own. I was ambitious, arrogant, and somewhat foolish. But I just had, uh, you know, in my, I was now getting to be 26 or 27 and feeling like I better get on with my own thing. So I wanted to start my own uh, company and, and I couldn't really do, gr grow out of the PR box in the context of working for Zeppelin. Uh, shortly after I left, within the year after I left, John Bonham uh, died. He, 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 he choked to death on his own vomit from, uh, he was a bad drunk, you know, a Jekyll and Hyde drunk and, and, and the liquor got the best of him and, there were real tragedies. Robert's uh, son died at one point, and the band, you know, really essentially ended. They only did uh, one album after I stopped working with them. But, but uh, you know, their music is unbelievably influential today. I, I, I rarely talk to any rock band where the where they don't want to hear a Led Zeppelin story. They, they You know, I have a 14-year-old son, and a lot of his friends like Led Zeppelin, and it turns out that they really made classic rock in the best sense of the word, not in the gimmicky sense of a radio format, but in the sense of music that's really stood the test of, of time. And, and I was lucky enough to see them at the uh, London reunion show about a year ago. And uh, you know, they had this little videotape where they showed the uh, Tampa Stadium show where they broke the Beatles record, which was you know kind of this PR gimmick I thought up to, to explain to people I mean, you know, there was no exact one record for biggest audiences. This was post-Woodstock, but we created this category of a one-artist show. And um, it was it made me feel good that that was an accomplishment that they still... It was a way of encapsulating their 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 size. But the main thing that made me feel good was how great Jimmy Page plays the guitar even to this day. I, I hope they do a, a, a tour. I think when Robert Plant's finished with doing what he's doing with Alison Kress, maybe in a couple of years he'll pick up the phone and call the other guys. And if, if he does, and they do, it's worth seeing. Now, you went on to form your own professional PR and ended up working with uh, Jackson Brown on no nukes. You also had, tell a great story. You worked with Kiss a and um, Ted Nugent. Tell us about Ted Nugent and Truman Capote, two people we never thought would meet. Well, this what, what I wanted to do in the book, in addition to telling my own experiences, was to just interview a few of my friends who did the same kind of work to just broaden the variety of artists. And there was a good friend of mine named Susan Blonde, who's a great PR person, who had also been kind of a protege of Andy Warhol, who who who. Uh, um, became the head of press for uh, Epic Records, which is a division of Sony, and she had a similar problem with Ted Nugent that I had with Zeppelin, except he, she didn't have the statistics to back her up, or, in my opinion, the music. But she still had to get press for him, and she she t convinced uh, Warhol to bring um, Truman Capote to see a... Uh, that was her, her default PR... When she couldn't think of anything else to do, she would always try out Warhol because you could always get people in the press by proximity to Warhol. So Warhol brought Truman Capote to see a Ted Nugent show, and they took a photo together. And uh, 
so then after they took the photo, uh, Andy said to her, you know, do we need to stay for the show or is it okay that we just did the photo? And she said, the, the photo is just fine, thanks. You, you don't have to stay. And she was able to milk that for a few weeks. And those were the kind of tricks that people would do to just try to get attention uh, in, in, in the press uh, for, some of the, uh, for some of the artists. So I, I, in addition to my own uh, memories, I, I, I interviewed a few of my friends, Larry Salters, who worked with the Eagles, Howard Bloom, who worked with John Mellencamp and Susan, to just kind of broaden the spectrum of stories about how artists were able to find audiences in the 70s and 80s. Now, now you eventually ended up uh, working with Nirvana, and they, you came to them through Sonic Youth. Can yeah. You tell me about that. Well, I, I finally was able to, to make a living as a manager as the years went by. After working for Zeppelin, it was always my goal was to be a manager because Peter Grant was such a powerful figure, but it took me uh, many years to, to get clients to want me as their manager. And I'd, I'd started a company called Gold Mountain. Bonnie Raitt uh, was an important client of ours who had the great success with Nick of Time while we handled her. And um, But my wife, uh, who's uh, a lawyer in the music business, was nagging me about trying to understand this younger generation of what was then called uh, alternative rock, indie rock. And I... I um, hired a young man named John Silva, who's today a very successful manager of people like the Beastie Boys and the Foo Fighters. And and together we were able to get Sonic Youth as a client. And Sonic Youth, uh, uh, then as now, was incredibly astute at identifying new new uh, important music. They, they, uh, Thurston Moore and Kim Gordon of, of the band, uh, in addition to being very good musicians, are great uh, tastemakers. And uh, they'd had Nirvana open to them in Europe. Nirvana had made this indie record called Bleach that they spent literally only $800 recording and it sold about 30,000 copies, which was quite a good number even then for an indie release. And it got the attention of the A&R people. And the band wanted a manager. They came down to Los Angeles to meet different people and they met with us. And, you know, I hit it off with Chris Novoselic right away because we had a lot of political ideas in common. He was a big ACLU guy and so was I. And Kurt was pretty quiet for most of that first conversation, and I was kind of walking on eggs because I just had a sense that they'd be a good client. I didn't really understand how good a client, but I, I, I wanted to win if other people were trying to get them. So I said, so do you want to stay on an indie la on Sub Pop? That was the indie label they were on, because a lot of groups at that time had the feeling that indie labels had some aesthetic purity or moral purity, uh, you know, compared to the major labels. And Kurt spoke up. He says, definitely not. So I realized, you know, soon that, that, that although he uh, was very committed to a lot of the aspects of the punk rock culture, the, the, the politics of it, the uh, creative uh, authenticity of it, uh, the, he, he, uh, he wanted to be big. And this was the paradox of Kurt Cobain. He, he, he loved punk rock culture. He, he came from a small town. He respected the uh, scene in Seattle he'd come out of. But he did move to Los Angeles. No one put a gun to his head and asked him to do that. He did choose... Uh, you know, uh, a middle-aged guy like me to be his manager, and he did uh, quickly want to sign with Geffen Records, which is where Sonic Youth was when he when he when he certainly could have stayed uh, indie. And he um, he made and he wrote songs with choruses that you could hum. I mean, he was somebody who, although he loved the Melvins and the Dead Kennedys and the punk rock ethos, he also listened uh, to every Beatles record hundreds of times and knew and 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 had a, had an acute sense of song structure and writing memorable choruses in addition to the imaging of uh, of being a genuine alternative to the 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 kind of more commercial prosaic so-called hair bands that were predominant uh, in the in the commercial rock culture of the uh, of the early 90s and he uh, he made that record you know i mean he had help and the other guys are good musicians and 
Butch Vig's a good producer, but Kurt wrote every song, played the lead guitar, uh, sang, uh, designed the album cover, uh, wrote shot by shot the treatments for the videos, designed the t-shirts, uh, and um, had had this vivid understanding of what rock and roll could and should be, and, and, and tuned in with a worldwide yearning for something new. Uh, you know, that record exploded uh, uh, immediately when people heard it, you know, the song Smells Like Teen Spirit, it was played on a few stations and there were waiting lists of people at indie rock stores to get the record before it was even out. And uh, by Christmas, it came out I think the end of September, and by Christmas it was number one and it surpassed the Michael Jackson record. And there was a New York Times article where they asked Geffen President Eddie Rosenblatt what the marketing plan had been on uh, Nevermind. And he said the marketing plan was get out of the way and duck. And it was one of the great, honest, as I put it in my book, I said, real men didn't take credit for what geniuses did. And, and I always loved Eddie for saying it so candidly. And the same thing happened all over the world. I mean, I went to France with them and England. And, uh, it, you know, it just, it, it just it touched a worldwide nerve that was rooted in his ability, like I think the way John Lennon could do and Janis Joplin and, and Dylan to, to both be very personal and yet to make people feel like they knew him. I mean, it was the first time I saw them live, what I got out of him, this was before Nevermind came out, was his ability to both be on stage and somehow be in the audience. He had this ability to project on a mass scale and yet still create tremendous intimacy that only the greatest artists do. And, uh, you know, again, I think his music is also stood the test of time. Now, now they're an old group and, you know, people and they're 35 years old, remember being in high school. And yet, you, you know, I meet, I meet kids at colleges all the time who, who choke up when they talk about Kurt Cobain. So he's one of those rare people that, that was, that's able to speak to some inner vulnerability that people have through the sound of his voice and his lyrics and the whole legacy that he left only a few records but you know Hendrix only made a few records too and his music has held up pretty well there's a few artists that are able to do that I've been speaking with Danny Goldberg his new book is Bumping Into Geniuses My Life Inside the Rock and Roll Business thank you for speaking with me Danny oh thanks so much for, for having me I really appreciate it You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.